namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa uttang dhammang sankhang namasami so we're all kind of old timers almost time meditators so I'm sure you know it all and heard it all before, but uh, it's good to it's good to come together and be reminded of uh, just being quiet, sitting quietly. The world's a very compelling place, which is grabbing our attention in various ways. So to to just to sit down and and um, basically not be a person anymore. It's kind of what we're one of the things we're doing in meditation is we're just letting go letting go for a period of time of being the the actor on stage, doing our duties and uh, responding to our responsibilities. And as human beings we we have this curious capacity to both be actors on the stage but also witness our own acting. It's odd, isn't it? and even to witness the film critic that's witnessing our acting. And this capacity to be aware or um, reflect on, on the play of our lives is, is uh, really the, it's our sanity. If we didn't have that, we'd just be driven by uh, whatever forces were coming through us and we would just be reactive beings, but we don't have to react, we can respond, we can pause, we can practice restraint, we can we can develop all kinds of capacities. So this is the, the capacity to reflect or be aware. And so when we're when we're sitting when we're sitting in meditation, one of the things we're doing is we're 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 learning how not to be a person. And and so we can see a sense of a person coming up in, in thought, in idea, in memory, in emotion, uh, in re- reaction to heat, say, in the body, or pain in the knee or whatever. You can see a kind of sense of a person coming up. We do see that, that that's it's a thought, it's an idea, it's a projection, uh, it's about the future, it's about the past. And we can witness to that. And we cannot be that person. We cannot get on that bus we can uh, choose not to uh, play that role. And that's very liberating to, have, to, be, to make that choice. And so if we do that consciously and, and skillfully in meditation, then that strength of non-reactivity or uh, that strength of pause or restraint that we have in sitting meditation is a power that plays itself up. We all know that in, in uh, our ordinary lives. Um, I was just uh, talking with Curtis and others. There's an interesting study now that University in Oxford and London are going to take 7,000 11 or 12 year olds, divide them into two groups, and do a study, um, blind study. And uh, half will get mindfulness training, and the other half will not. And they're going to try to follow this 
7,000 kids for seven years. Um, and what they're trying to see is, it does, does mindfulness practice actually help with uh, the onset of mental illness, which seems to come on before the age of 15, this is the article was saying. So they want to follow these, these kids through. And of course the questions will come up, well, where are they going to get the teachers? And what's the study, and what is mindfulness for them? And Curtis is a psychologist who's asking those kinds of questions. Um, and obviously the article didn't go into all the refined details of that, but it's a, I find it very interesting that in society you can do a, a study, or try to do a study so huge. Imagine the amount of, just the number of teachers it would take. Uh, for such a long period of time, the investment and the cost of fortune in mindfulness, in whatever way they define mindfulness. But to me, that's a very, a very good sign. It's a very good sign of, of uh, cultures taking responsibility for the minds of their inhabitants. Um, and they do, in the article, they mention that this is a, a method that was introduced by the Buddha 2,500 years ago in India, and now it's been secularized, and so on and so forth. So I feel like I've made a good choice. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sort of in with culture now. Forty years ago, of course, I wasn't so in. People thought that monks are a bit loopy. It would be crazy to do this. You must be some extreme religious... And yet now there's a tremendous amount of re- respect for this path. In, in the kind of acting that we do in, in the world, in our responsibilities and so on, the, the, the roles we play as human beings, the, the recommendation in the teaching is always one of, of, of mutual care. So the parent cares for the child's welfare, but the child cares for the parents' welfare. The employer cares for the employee's welfare. The employee cares for the employer's welfare. The monk, the monk cares for the uh, lay person. The lay person cares for the monk. Husband cares for wife. Wife cares for husband, and so on. And uh, it's a very simple way. Life isn't that simple, of course, but but it's um, that sense of mutual respect and, and, and mutual care is obviously a a very, very um, rewarding way to live one's life. But sometimes culture is not that way. It's competition and, and uh, domineering and uh, not so skillful, not so skillful ways of, of developing. So what we try to do is we try to act out our, our lives in these ways of, of developing the heart, uh, developing our capacity to live a more and more refined moral life, um, doing our best within culture. Uh, and then within that, developing this, this, this capacity to, to reflect and to witness um, the comings and goings of your mind. And so the, the, the goal of, of Buddhism is both a social goal, is try to try to live in a way which is um, doing the least amount of harm possible to oneself and others, uh, and then the spiritual goal is to find that place of non-person. 
because a place of non-person is actually a, a place of, of peace and hopefully we, we touch that in meditation so just like now I was feeling hot you were feeling hot I suspect and uh, sweaty and sticky and so on and so that is part of the process that I'm watching I'm watching the process of the human body and the mind's reaction to the human body and within that process I could see a sense of a person coming up like why don't we all go for a walk or let's go to Denny's for a swim or <laughs> let's check out Anne's canoe and that's the sense of a person arising with desire and, and fantasy or whatever and that can be known as an object and that's just a thought that's just a thought and when that thought is known as an object we begin to what we meet, we begin to touch that which is really peaceful in the heart that place where there isn't really a, a person responding to life there's just pure pure intelligence and pure awareness a peaceful place it's a very peaceful place. And to not touch that, I think, would be a huge loss. You know, having this human birth and not to be able to touch that place of peace and just be compelled all the time to be a person, to do things, to uh, do whatever we do, just to live in that kind of compelled way of distraction, to me, seems a huge loss of human potential, human possibility. So this, this witnessing consciousness or awareness consciousness is, is more about process rather than person. And I was talking with our, our venerable treasurer the other day and we were talking about um, uh, just some, something that we're discussing on how to do something in our account and said, oh, it's about process. I said, oh yeah, sure, that's a kind of, you know, in a business model, it's not about the people. It's about the process, so that way you get to get the people out of the way and personalities and all that. And it's just about process, and I think that's a good way to look at what we're doing in the contemplative life. We're looking at process rather than, as Lompoc Semedo says, rather than taking it personally. So I can take the heat personally, or I can notice that in the process of the body, heat arises, and in the heat of the body, there's a desire. There's a desire not to have the heat, but if I can notice the desire and not create a person around the heat, then the heat just becomes neutral. That's just, it's just the way it is. And that's peace, because I've no longer invested my happiness or fulfillment in the temperature of the body. The temperature of the body is as it is. Given an option, I probably would go for a dip. <laughs> I wouldn't deny that. But I'll, most times we don't have that many options. Life is that way. So... So that the, the capacity to see our human experience as a process rather than as a person is a very fundamental part of contemplative life, isn't it? See the process of emotions or the process of a body or the process of memory or uh, the processes of thought and perception and all of that, to see them as, as movements that can be witnessed and you can be aware of. Very basic. Very basic to any kind of sane and fruitful life. Um, and you know, yesterday we, we met in, um, last week we met in the tent. And I, I, I think I opened that talk by saying, what, what, in being in this room now, what would I have to do to make it suffering? We were, talk, we were thinking about right effort. Well, that was a good opening gambit. <laughs> and that, that kind of 
um, was a kind of interesting theme for me for the week. Just uh, what is it about this moment? What would I have to do with this moment to make it suffering? So that requires of me to uh, wake up to this moment. What's it really like? And I can change it a little bit, but often I can. It's just this way, both externally and internally, my physical um, well-being or non-well-being. I can move my posture, I can eat, I can have a shower. Uh, My emotional um, content is coming through, the memories that go through, the people I relate to, and so on. It's pretty much a given most of the time. And I can... You know, I can shift a few things, but there's not that much you can really shift. You can do a few things, but... So it's just, just a kind of this capacity to actually... To, to make conscious... It's the simplest thing, but to actually make conscious just, just the way it is, before comment. Before I make a comment or judgment about it. That is a big step as well. That, that sense of, of, of a truly awakened presence to the way things are. That's, that's, uh, it's obvious, but it's actually not very subtle. We just get caught up in trying to do something about the way things are. So that, you could see just that question, so what would I have to do to make this moment suffering? Well, I'd have to be inattentive, first of all. I'd have to be not paying attention to the way things are. I'd have to be somehow reactive to the way things are not be aware of it and then if I did if I did just like make conscious the way things are then what is it about this moment what would I have to do that it would become suffering and there was an interesting question last week where uh, a woman asked well isn't isn't the, the pain in the body isn't that suffering and we got into a bit of Buddhist language, but the suffering the Buddha is talking about is the is the mental suffering. So, the physical pain that we have is a given, depending on our age and all kinds of things, and that's something we need to learn how to be at peace with. So, it's the non-peace of the mind that we're reflecting upon. So, so it's kind of looking at this question of well, what would I have to do to make this moment suffering? What would I have to do to make anger suffering? And it would seem like anger is suffering in itself. Yeah, kind of, yeah. But does not anger just or irritation or annoyance doesn't just arise sometimes? Doesn't it just get triggered because of situation? Doesn't it just come up? So when, when does like that feeling of irritation or annoyance or anger, when does it become suffering? Well, I think it's when I can't endure it like I can endure the heat. When I can endure feelings of irritation, annoyance, and anger as an object of mind, then I don't, it, for me it's not really suffering. It's just unpleasant. Um, and I like using physical uh, analogies because in the physical world we have lots of unpleasant feelings, and we can be at peace with them. Right? We can do that. And we, I think we all learn that in meditation. Does the same apply to our emotional world? Can you say that uh, fear is not suffering? 
Can you say that fear only becomes suffering when I create a person around it? And to me, that's true. We had we had tea yesterday, and I was sharing just some um, energies which were coming through me, which um, I notice sometimes in my own psyche, the way I'm this being has been conditioned or constructed, and I I just notice these feelings of dread coming up into my consciousness, and it had no relation to anything. This was like I could not I could not get a storyline around it. Everything is good. I'm, I'm I'm probably the most secure person in the world. I've got health care. I've got people feeding me, people inviting me to fly here and there. I've got good friends, right? And yet this feeling of dread, just this feeling of dread came up. Now, is that suffering? It's not, really. It's just the way it is. Just the way it is. I could analyze it and kind of try to figure it out, but I've never found that terribly fruitful, so I don't go there. So then I just, and I just asked myself, that, well, what would I have to do to make this suffering? And just that question actually pointed out, well, yeah, you've got no, no real choice right now, Viridamo. This is just the way it is for some reason. It's just dread. Just dread. No, it's just... And so just that perspective of, is this really suffering? Made me more mindful. And as it made me more mindful, the tendency to try to do something about it in thought, that fell away. And because I do a lot of body awareness, I could really just feel it as, as a quite a powerful tension in the belly. Just a powerful, uncomfortable tension in the belly. But is that suffering? And that's not suffering either. And as long as I didn't make a person out of it, it seemed to me this is just... Vipaka kama, as we say in Buddhism, or it's just energy, or it's just process. It's just some kind of process going through. And I found that it kind of came came and went for a couple of days, and the results were peaceful. But I found the end of it just like being with the being with physically. What happened was I was just with the hara, the belly, and just really, really observing that and. I'm really letting go, and then I just start to have these yawning sessions. <laughs> I started yawning and yawning, like releasing something. I wasn't doing it. It just, just it was a process. It was a process. But I think because there was now, over the years I've learned about this, there, was not, there wasn't a demand that it be different than it is. There wasn't a need to analyze or to fix or become something else. There was no problem. But it was unpleasant. It was unpleasant. So this basic structure that the Buddha is uh, pointing out quite often in, in our teaching is that uh, our, our, our sense apparatus, including the mind and, and the emotions that come through, the combination of our senses, um, that that involves uh, pleasant and unpleasant, what we call Vedana, or the affective tone, I think we say. And that's a given. That's just a given. And our, our task is right in that point of unpleasantness or pleasantness, can we sustain awareness and not become a person around it? And that's where the ideas of craving and attachment come up. Where the, so you could see how in the past that dread would have come up 
and then I would have thought dreadful things <laughs> about, you know, what's going to happen to the monastery or da, 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 da. and I have, I know, I can remember doing that. And so the dread now would not have been uh, just a, a process or an energy that went through consciousness. Now it would have become a person, me. Me and, and my anxious, ridden future. Now, when there are a lot of things that you can worry about, like if you're in Syria, or you know, you've know you got cancer, or one has uh, just gotten fired, or, you know, then certainly there's a lot to be afraid of. There's a lot to be afraid of. But to be able to separate out the fear and the rational thinking would be a great benefit to yourself and to others. But And I think that the more we can, in those spaces of our lives where there isn't that much pressure in meditation, either, we can separate out the, the awareness and the objects of awareness. We can see that memory is just memory and that emotion is just emotion. The more we do that in non-threatening situations, in non-complex situations, the more that intelligence, that intuition, operates and manifests and helps us in these more complex situations. The more I think we do body awareness, the more we pay attention to the body, not just to keep it in good shape or to use it as a vehicle for work or pleasure, but actually to understand it as a energetic form, to, to feel the energy body that we all have, and to become intelligent uh, physically, as it were, to have the intuitions about the physical body and how it's uh, reacting to life, to have that kind of physical intelligence uh, is very, very helpful. So that when life does get complicated or difficult, we've got this other kind of equipment, not just our thoughts. And our thoughts are kind of just driven by emotion, right? just by habit. And, and, and we've seen that, Evan, where, where sometimes we can sit back and we can see these, we can be sort of witnessing the play that's going on, and, and we choose not to audition for that role. <laughs> we choose not to be grumpy. We choose not to be um, uh, bombastic or yeah, whatever it is and we can see that that role wanting to get on stage and, and no, I don't think I'll audition for that thank you and that's a freedom sometimes of course we're just on the stage we don't know how we got there and all of a sudden we're acting out roles that we feel regretful later or embarrassed later or whatever and that's where that sense of witnessing is not so strong. And that's where we really suffer because we don't want to go there. But it happens. We get kidnapped. And so our training is to, I think, more, you know, to, to really find a refuge in awareness of change, to find a refuge in understanding ourselves, not just through thought, through thought, because thought, when it's driven by emotion, is often lying to us. If you think about the things that, you, that we've all been anxious about and never never was a problem, all the things that I was resentful of and I was wrong, and all the things I hoped would happen and when they happened I regretted it. <laughs> and and there's a lot of delusion goes on in thought. But when there's a witnessing to the whole 
the whole kind of thing of being a human being, the physicality, the energy body, the emotional body, the intelligence, the intuition, and so on, when that's understood as a whole, there's a lot more information there than just analytical thinking. There's a lot more there. One of the, one of the uh, in this um, study they're going to do, the, the, um, the, 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 the question was, how do you keep kids motivated for seven years? 11, 12-year-olds starting, how do you keep them motivated to do mindfulness practice? For and that, that would be a huge, a huge problem to find. But uh, one of the techniques they use is, is uh, they ask the child, they, they describe the emotions as buses, buses going through consciousness, and then they just say to the kid, well, do you really want to get on that bus? That's such a simple you know, simile, so very, very simple. And yet, you know, if you can do that, if you can see in your own mind these emotions as coming up as being actors or parts pl- being played or buses going through, you're mindful. You're already mindful. So any kind of objectivity makes you makes you more mindful. So going t- back to the idea of, 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 of process, what, what do you need to do to um, witness your own life as process? You need to be able to objectify things rather than be the subject of them. And one of the places I think that is very interesting is when you wake up. When you wake up in the morning, if you're really practicing mindfulness, you, you'll kind of remember the, the dream states to some extent. And, and you'll notice those dream states uh, will affect the first mood that you have when you wake up. And that mood is only a perception. And what's interesting for me about that is that those dream states are very real, emotionally. You know, they're very, very real. It's not like it's some abstract thing. It's like fear or, or annoyance or whatever has been there, has been in the mind in that in that dream state. And then you come out of the, you know, you've, you've slept through and you wake up in the morning and the echo of that dream state is there. And that perception is interpreting the world around you. That perception is a dream state which is now conditioning how you are looking at the world around you. Stunning. I find that stunning because it's totally deluded. It's, it's highly embarrassing. And yet, and yet, grudginess or fearfulness or whatever can be there first thing. And that, I think that's what leads one to our perceptions of the world are often dream states, aren't they? You know, our perceptions of each other or ourselves, the world around us, are often uh, dream states, fantasies. Or, or you think about like, like self-consciousness. Like, like most of us have probably suffered from some form of self-consciousness where you come, you know, when you're younger, you come into a room, you think everyone's looking at you and... Everyone's just looking at their iPad or whatever. But it's, it seems so very, very real, doesn't it? And that's just a perception. That's just a, that's a perception. That's all it is. So perceptions, how we are interpreting the world, are a necessary part of our equipment. If you don't have perceptions, if they're, um, or if they're totally inaccurate, crazy. But a, a lot of our perceptions are a bit crazy. 
<laughs> they're a bit tinged with madness. So to actually, what we're trying to do in, in, in Buddhist practice is to witness perception as perception, and then wait, and to see that, well, it's a perception, and see if a personality is now being built around that perception. So, if you take something like self-consciousness, and you walk into a room, and, and you feel very, very self-conscious, uh, and to actually have enough awareness to notice, ah, oh, self-consciousness has this very uncomfortable feeling, witness it, and not become the per- self-conscious person, acting it out. That's a strength. That's a huge strength. Or resentment towards someone, or jealousy towards someone, or uh, self-doubt about yourself, or self-disparagement about yourself, or these different moods that come up, they're simply perceptions. That's all they really are. Perceptions of self-criticism or self-judgment can be very, seem very, very real. We've all had that, haven't we? It's just this kind of inner tyrant is just whipping us into some horrible shape. <laughs> just saying, they did it wrong, you... And that whole, that's just, the, it's just the, that's just an interpretation, and it's a bad dream. So what we try to rely on Buddhism is our intentions. We try to make our intentions very, very clear, as much as possible. And that's a, a very good reflection to bring forth when there is self-doubt, when there is that kind of heaviness of mind, where we're sort of self-critical. So, well, what were my intentions? So if I, if I have a misunderstanding with someone, and they say, you're very dumb, you, you know, you, you're insensitive. Now, if I'm not aware of my intentions, I can get really intimidated by that. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I hurt you? <laughs> but, but if I'm aware, that actually, no, no, my intention wasn't, wasn't to hurt you. It's just, you know, it just happened. There's a sense of peace and confidence. And, and, and then in your own life, if you, if you happen to have you walk away from a situation or whatever and, and you start to get self-doubt if you if you've just tried to do your very best and you keep making that intention today today I'm going to try to do my best not to harm others not to harm myself to try to be mindful if you keep making that intention clear you begin to have a, a mirror to the delusions of self-doubt and self-criticism and self-hatred because they are delusions they're just another form of personality view that comes up So, in, in, in Buddhist contemplation, to notice the sense of a person arising is, is, is the real crux of the matter. That's what we mean by grasping or attachment. And to see that that sense of a person, not intelligence, not presence, not awareness, but that sense of a personality, that is simply thought. That's all it is. It's not a reality. It's just simply thought. It just comes and it certainly feels real, but it is just a thought. So we try to notice the end of that, the end of a personality proliferation. By listening, that's a good one. Just, you know, your mind's starting to make a problem around something. Then just stop and listen. And you notice there's no person there. There's intelligence, there's presence, there's sound, but the sense of a personality now in time and all of that, not there. It's just thought. And then it comes up again. Blah, 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 blah. And you begin to see, oh, that very sense of a personality is simply perception, conditioned by memory, 
reinforced by thought, habitual, uh, powerful, certainly powerful, not, not, not to dismiss it. But having that perspective, seeing oh, the person, it's just a thought that comes and it goes, you begin to taste the end of a person. Not the end of your consciousness or intelligence, just the end of like a, a whole sense of a, a, an individual, suffering individual, that begins to, you begin to see its ending. And you begin to taste the silence of a non-person, say, or the emptiness of a, of a person, or what we call emptiness. You begin to notice that and appreciate that. And then as you notice the end, you also notice the arising. You notice how, how someone presses your guilt. You know, maybe someone says something and makes you feel guilty in some way. And then you, and you see the guilt arising and you see the personality view starting to coagulate around that. You don't follow it. You just witness to the thinking as thought. And you bear with the unpleasantness of the guilt feeling. You don't let the personality view occupy your attention totally and it ends, it ends and you soul. actually guilt is not suffering either guilt doesn't have to be suffering it's just an old karmic habit and in these very difficult things that we face guilt, dread, anger, fear uh, greed of various sorts uh, depression, self-doubt these powerful, powerful forces now can be processed as non-suffering as non-suffering, and we have to. You have to. You know. You have to uh, know that that the end of suffering does not mean the end of unpleasantness. Where we make a mistake, we think, well, if I have anything unpleasant, then then I have to get rid of it or have to do something about. It. So we lack patience. We lack patience. So take like if you take the model, like just the model of practice as first of all through the body, physical unpleasantness. Apply that to emotions. Don't go to the sense of a person. And then the responses to life will be fine. They're coming from a very good place, a place which are no longer um, crowded out by ego views. There's a lot of space for responding to the world in a proper way. We're not, we're not so overcrowded. If you think about the times of really suffering, when, when is suffering being really, really bad is when self-view is really bad, isn't it? When your mind is just running with some kind of criticism of someone else or criticism of yourself or total fear of what's going to happen the mind is just congested with wrong thinking and that's been the worst suffering hasn't it um, I often say when, when my when my dad asked me what what we do in meditation I suggested we're we're moving to no thought and he he said to me it's impossible but it is. <laughs> you can. In any given moment, you can listen to this moment without thinking about it. I was suggesting some meditation to someone who did, didn't meditate. They wanted to know yesterday. And I said, well, just listen to sound. And then feel your hands. Listen to sound. Okay, you're meditating. I said, oh, I see. I have to think about sound. No, no, no. no. You're not thinking about sound. It's the direct perception, the direct contact with. And that's what I was doing with the dread, wasn't I? I was making direct contact with the dread without the intermediary of thought, without the intermediary of judgment and analysis and self-view. It was just direct contact with, with this feeling of dread, and that was unpleasant. But the result, 
result of being with the unpleasant and not attaching to desire is that desire ends. And as desire ends, you, you have this kind of freedom of mind which is okay with anything, you know, whatever, pleasant or unpleasant. And that kind of freedom doesn't come through manipulation. It's not a construct. It's not something that you manufacture through willful effort and accumulation of willful efforts. It's rather much, much more the process of non-grasping, uh, letting go, uh, being patient, seeing things cease, seeing things fall away. And that's why the path is so, I think, subtle, because our efforts, the efforts we make, are quite often to become and get rid of. And, and in good ways, it's not like we're evil. But this other way of just trusting in awareness, trusting in, 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 in no thought, trusting in knowing just the way things are, letting, letting these karmas run their course, is, is a, um, it takes, I guess that's Buddhist faith, huh? one way to look at it. Not faith in a, in a belief system, but faith in a practice that actually leads to good results. Okay, I'll leave that for your pondering.